The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront, analyse Volodymyr Zelensky's efforts to keep Ukraine's EU candidacy on the road, and we look at the motives and methods of Hungary's Viktor Orban. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 24th of October, one year and 242 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today is Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes and assistant comment editor Francis Dern. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from the battlefront. So Russia's naval forces this morning claimed to have destroyed three uncrewed maritime drones launched by Ukraine from the northern part of the Black Sea. So if that sounds familiar, that's because it is. They're these sort of waterborne drones stuffed with various explosives that Ukraine has used in the past to control and hit elements of the Black Sea fleets and other maritime targets in the area around occupied Crimea. So the sounds of explosions were reported by various Russian proxies this morning around the port of Sevastopol in occupied Ukraine. That's the traditional home of the Black Sea fleet, even though there are significant doubts over what ships and submarines Russia still has stationed there, given the amount of recent Ukrainian attacks on the area, be it with these drones or more substantial storm shadows and other aerial missiles. So Russia's Defence Ministry wrote on Telegram that anti-sabotage missiles and bombs hit the area where unmanned boats were detected. The ministry added that anti-mining and anti-sabotage operations were being carried out. So Mikhail Razanakakayev, who is the Russian-installed governor of occupied Sevastopol, he said on Telegram as well, loud sounds from an external raid, the Black Sea fleet is battling a probable attack by underwater diversionary forces. So it wasn't immediately clear whether anything had been destroyed or there were any casualties. As always, Ukraine was tight-lipped on the attack. I expect we'll start hearing a few more things, maybe later this afternoon, maybe tomorrow morning, whether they've been successful. But what is interesting is this apparent strike comes at a nicely timed junction, given this morning and today is also the second meeting of the parliamentary summit of the Crimea platform. It involves some 70 foreign delegations uh, and is happening in the Czech Republic. So Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave a speech highlighting Ukraine's effective operations against Russia's Black Sea fleet. He said it was a historic achievement that Russia had been forced to announce that from now on its Black Sea fleet would be based in Abkhazia. That is a Russian-held enclave in Georgia. So it was basically annexed in 2008 when Russia invaded part of Georgia. It's also on the Black Sea. Zelensky said this was as far as possible from Ukrainian missiles and naval drones. But he also said we will get them everywhere. Then this is another quote from his speech, which was delivered via video link. 
As of now, we have not yet achieved full fire control over Crimea and the adjacent waters, but it is a matter of time. So basically what he's saying there is that Ukraine hasn't got the ability to strike absolutely everywhere over Crimea, but he is pretty confident that he has, or his armed forces have almost complete coverage over Russian logistics and security around Crimea. So we've got to remember Crimea is vital for supplying Russia's troops in the south of Ukraine. Okay, then off to the counteroffensive, still trundling on from the Ukrainians. And this is a note from the Institute of the Study of War. That's the US-based think tank in Washington that we cite so often. Uh, its experts reported that Ukrainian forces had managed to advance south of Bakhmut and also around the western Zaporizhia line. So that's the two main axes of assault still going. And they cited geolocated footage published on October 22nd, which suggested Ukraine had advanced across a railway line just north of Klishkiva. That is around seven kilometres southwest of Bakhmut. And we know from various testimonies, and it looks like that Ukraine are attempting that double envelopment around Bakhmut from that southern and northern tip. It's going, it's moving slowly, but there is progress every day. Okay, then um, to something that was announced over the weekend, but we didn't quite get to cover given everything that's going on in the world. Britain's Royal Engineers will train Ukrainian forces to protect vital energy infrastructure from long-range attacks this winter. So Britain's uh, Royal Engineers are offering a two-week course that will help Ukrainian engineers better plan their defences as they try to safeguard civilians from these attempted attacks by Moscow, which aim to freeze Ukraine into submission over the long winter months. So Grant Shapps, the Defence Secretary, he said, and I quote, It is essential that Ukraine receives the support it urgently needs throughout the winter, as its civilian populations face mortal danger on a daily basis from Putin's forces and their indiscriminate campaign of bombardment against its critical infrastructure. So the drills will build on previous techniques that have been taught to Ukrainian volunteers, including how to use sandbags for maximum defensive effectiveness and constructing trenches around critical infrastructure. So Kiev's troops will uh, learn how to negate the impact of different Russian weapons. They'll be looking at how big blast zones and blast radiuses are, but they'll also be looking at creating physical and aerial barriers to protect critical infrastructure. So interestingly, the British government hasn't named where the um, training will take place, mainly for national security reasons, I would guess. But they've said they will be hosted at a British gasworks, a military airstrip and port facilities. So that is really sort of gearing up the Ukrainians to protect gasworks, electrical power stations, but also with F-16s and various air launch missiles like the British Storm Shadow being so important to Ukraine, military airstrips are going to be part of that training. And then port facilities, that's given Russia's bombing of Odessa and the various grain shipping terminals around that area. So it will build on the 37,000 Ukrainian recruits that will be trained by the end of 2024 as part of Operation Interflex. And this is a quote from Major Michael Sudeby. He's from the 63rd Work Group Royal Engineers. And he said, there is no doubt this training will be implemented in Ukraine in the coming weeks and have a real life impact on the quality of life of its civilians and the ability for Ukraine to resist Russian attacks throughout the winter. So what we know is Vladimir Putin has constantly been accused of trying to freeze Ukrainians. I mentioned that. And so this new training plan essentially comes after Ukraine, whether it be in Granada at the European Political Community Summit that I attended or the recent 
defence ministerial in Brussels. For NATO ministers were President Zelensky also came along. So this training is building on promises of Western air defence systems that are being delivered to Ukraine to basically protect it over the winter months. And then a little bit more from the ISW, the Institute of Study of War, Russia's domestic production of artillery shells, the think tank reported, has been supplemented by increased ammunition imports from North Korea and will likely allow Russian forces to sustain sufficient rates of artillery fire in 2024, a bit at a relatively lower rate than during 2022. So the Estonian Defence Forces Intelligence Centre has stated that Russia still has around 4 million artillery shells remaining, which Russian forces can use for low-intensity warfare for an additional year. So that ammunition has been supplemented by around 1,000 containers of ammunition shipped from North Korea to Russia, which we believe contain around three to 500 pieces of artillery ammunition each. That is estimated that North Korea may therefore be able to provide between 300 to 500 pieces of ammunition to Russia, which can last at one month at the current daily rate of consumption of around 10,000 shells a day. So there's obviously lots of predictions about whether the West and Ukraine can outlast Russia. Russia looks to have dwindling supplies. It's going to the likes of Iran and North Korea, which is interesting because what are the dud rates like? How effective are North Korean ammunition? But North Korea is one of the leading artillery forces in the world, so they will have plenty of stockpiles. And we actually know that Ukraine has been using North Korean artillery ammunition, uh, likely donated to it by Western governments that have seized shipments of it being sent around the world due to various arms debuggles. So if it's good enough for Ukraine, it's good enough for the Russians, and it's bad news that Russia has supplies, but it's also good news that its own supplies are dwindling. So hopefully there's an end in sight there, and I'll stop there for now, David. Thank you very much, Joe Barnes, for talking us through all of those updates. Uh, Francis, it's been quite an, an active last 24 hours, diplomatically and politically. Can you talk us through what you've been looking at? Sure. Well, thanks, David. When we're discussing Ukraine in the European context, we're often obliged to ask what Ukraine would gain from membership of the European Union and NATO, and less what the European Union and NATO would gain from Ukraine's membership. But President Zelensky has this morning been keen to stress what he sees as the strategic advantages for Europe in the long term of Ukraine's tilt westward, aside from the strength of its armed forces, of course, and the work that is underway within the country to prepare itself for membership. Our Europe is at a special moment, he said. For decades, it has been separated into two territories, one where our common values are protected by European institutions and another where they are not. Now, at last, we are a few geopolitical steps away from eliminating this division. Since the collapse of the so-called Eastern Bloc, the lack of geopolitical certainty has been the greatest threat to life in Europe. It attracted crises like a magnet and tempted enemies of the European way to fight against European unity. Because even the smallest grey geopolitical zone provokes claims to dominate it. Various political forces try to paint it in their own colours. Now is our historic chance for the whole of Europe to remove the lack of geopolitical certainty, this source of crises and problems. Now, interestingly, those remarks by President Zelensky correspond with the analysis of historian James Carafano in the podcast last week. He was very keen to emphasise just how economically transformative Ukraine's coming back into the Western fold, as it were, would and will be, so much so that 
he argued we would be able to contain Russia and be largely unaffected by what it does in the long term, something that has not been the case before now, given particularly our energy dependency. That interview was on day 599 and offered some food for thought, so I do recommend it if you didn't have a chance to listen to that. But Zelensky went on to discuss how Ukraine has been implementing the recommendations as quickly as possible that are required in order to open the accession talks later this year for EU membership. So he emphasised, firstly, constitutional justice reform. We've started the selection of constitutional court judges. Candidates will be evaluated by a group of experts, three of whom were proposed by our partners to ensure transparency and fairness. The second step we've taken is the reform of the High Council of Justice and the High Qualification Commission of Justices. The reboot of these key bodies launched the process of renewing the entire judicial system in Ukraine. And I'll reference that again in a moment. The third step is the anti-corruption work. We've restored electronic asset declarations for officials and their verification are during martial law. They must be public. We approve the state of anti-corruption programmes and we are strengthening the existing anti-corruption architecture. The fourth is our legislative compliance with the Financial Action Task Force requirements. The fifth is that we continue to work on protecting society and the state from misuse instigated by oligarchs. We've also adopted important antitrust legislation. The sixth, Ukrainian media legislation has been brought in line with EU standards. And the seventh, the protection of diversity through protecting national communities' rights. Respective legislative changes have already been adopted, including the law on national minorities. We have a clear vision for the next steps in education. We also have a target programme called Unity and Diversity. All of this creates new opportunities for national communities. Together with community leaders, we will ensure the highest international standards in this area. So those are Kiev's priorities in terms of domestic reform, according to Zelensky. Now, he mentioned, as I say, judicial reform there. And interestingly, Ukraine's justice minister has also given an interview to Reuters today, where he said that Ukrainian authorities feel newly empowered to prosecute oligarchs thanks to shifting political realities and the war with Russia. Everyone was afraid, he said, of the consequences of indicting oligarchs. But that is no longer the case. Indeed, it has been noticeable in recent months, the number of high-profile figures we've seen charged. Igor Kolomoisky, once considered Zelensky's chief patron, was jailed last month, suspected of fraud and money laundering. In May, Ukraine announced its suspected businessman Dmitry Firtash, who's wanted in the US and companies under his control of stealing up to $485 million in a large-scale scheme involving Ukraine's gas transit system. Authorities also seized more than $375 million of assets they said belonged to exiled billionaire Vadim Novinsky, whom they allege aided Russia. All of them deny wrongdoing. But as we've discussed many times, war is the engine of history, accelerating processes already taking place and creating new possibilities. If politics is the art of the possible then war often redefines what is perceived as possible for good or ill. And indeed, it is extremely noteworthy seeing just how much change there has been in Ukraine as a response of the conflict in terms of transforming its economy, but also in terms of shifting away from this oligarchic power. Now, just another quick couple of political updates before I finish. Zelensky was talking about the realignments in the European context, but this war and of course the events unfolding in the Middle East continue to alter realities 
beyond that theatre. The Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, will receive a lavish welcome from Joe Biden at the White House this week with talks about China and Ukraine, both on the agenda, we understand, almost certainly an attempt to reinforce ties between the US and its longtime ally Australia as part of that broader strategy to counter Beijing in the Asia-Pacific region. It will be an important visit, the Australian Prime Minister said. The alliance between Australia and the United States is central to Australia's foreign policy. And indeed, as we've talked about on the podcast many times, there's been a lot of very interesting work being carried out in strengthening the Indo-Pacific alliance, not only between Australia and the United States, but also between European countries and, of course, Britain as well. On the other side of the fence, Russia and Iran are firming up their bilateral relations in a trusting atmosphere, to quote Russia's foreign ministry. Apparently, Sergei Lavrov uh, will be received by the Iranian president during a visit to Tehran. And in a traditionally trusting atmosphere, current aspects of the bilateral agenda will be substantially discussed with an emphasis on further building up the entire complex of multifaceted Russian-Iranian partnership. Yet further evidence of that relationship being maintained and perhaps even strengthened despite Iran being implicated in the eyes of many in supporting Hamas and offering it in vital intelligence and international political cover to carry on its attack on Israel a fortnight ago and since then. Quite remarkable, really, but hardly surprising given everything that we've seen between Russia and Iran in recent months. But I'll stop there, David. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking us through all of that, uh, Francis. You were speaking, Francis, there about Europe. Uh, and last week, you spoke in detail about Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban showing up alongside Vladimir Putin at China's summit, celebrating a decade of the uh, Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Joe Barnes, yeah, our Brussels correspondent, can I bring you in here? Um, where Zelensky was lauding the EU at that, at that point, Orban is doing quite the opposite. What's he been saying? Can you talk us through some of the, the news coming out of Hungary? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, last week, uh, Viktor Orban was the, basically the first EU leader pictured shaking hands with Vladimir Putin since the Russian president invaded Ukraine. So quite a staggering thing on its own. But yeah, so... Viktor Orban has essentially compared Hungary's EU membership to the Soviet occupation of Hungary during a speech on Monday, which commemorated the anniversary of Hungary's 1956 uprising against Soviet rule. And I'll I'll, I'll quote a little bit from it. So he said, Today, things pop, pop up that remind us of Soviet times. Yes, it happens that history repeats itself. Fortunately, what was once a tragedy is now comedy at best. Fortunately, Brussels is not Moscow. Moscow is a tragedy. Brussels is just a contemporary parody. We had to dance to the tune that Moscow whistled. Brussels whistles too. But we dance as we want to. And if we don't want to, then we don't dance. So his words mirror a speech around the same time last year that also suggested the EU would end up like the Soviet Union. One of the major complaints that Viktor Orban has is he doesn't like the direction of how the EU is planning to jointly manage incoming illegal migration. And one of those plans is migration quotas, which would see each country expected to take in X amount of asylum seekers to basically take the burden away from 
the likes of Italy, Spain, Greece, the countries that receive most migrants across the Mediterranean. And the EU has said if you don't take in your quota, you'll be charged around €20,000 per head. And when Viktor Orban was speaking about this at the European Political Community Summit, he described how Hungary was being raped by Brussels, to actually quote him. But this isn't to be not expected from Viktor Orban. He's a guy that has made a political career of essentially bashing Brussels while taking billions in EU-funded grants and low-interest loans and various sort of levelling-up funds from the EU. But what it does say is that the EU does have a guy within its body that does want to be friends with Vladimir Putin. He's he's seen as a close ally of Vladimir Putin. Hungary is blocking a 500 million euro military aid package for Ukraine. But what they, they haven't said is they haven't said they are going to veto it outright. Hungary are basically looking for concessions constantly whether it be access to various funds from the EU's Coronavirus Recovery Fund, which I think they're still owed about 13 billion euros after sign-off from the Commission and European Parliament. But on one particular point at the moment, they are looking at a bank called OTP Bank, which is on a Ukrainian list from memory of international war sponsors because it does business with the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, those sort of pro-Kremlin proxies in occupied Ukraine. So Hungary has basically said that it's going to block is one way of putting it, but I I would prefer to use the word hold up because so far the EU has got 11 packages of sanctions against Russia out despite various Hungarian opposition. So Hungary is just holding out as long as it physically can before basically the pressure inside Brussels gets too great or... Ukraine relents and removes the OTP bank from its international list as a sponsor of war, as it calls it. So I vaguely remember recently there was a Ukraine-EU summit in Kyiv, and one of the things being discussed was this bank listing. Ukraine said they would take the bank off the list temporarily, but Hungary said, no, you've got to do it permanently. So look, it's all just political jostling, but it's not genuine blockage. It will one day go through and various other things are going through while this big political gestures from Hungary on one certain aspect of EU aid for Ukraine while other lots of smaller ones go through. You've got to remember, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that a a tranche of a million and a half euros went from Brussels to Ukraine as part of a big stability package, macroeconomic support. So look, Hungary isn't blocking per se it's slightly brussels nuance (laughs) but yeah look hungary will eventually sign off on that 500 million euros but remember it's accepting other things going through so it's all in the nuance and i'll hopefully be traveling to hungary at some point next month to discuss that with hungarian policymakers and politicians ahead of the big december moment when we expect the EU is going to offer Ukraine genuine membership accession talks. And I'll stop there on Victor Orban. Thank you very much, Joe. That was fascinating. And uh, do call in when you're out in Hungary next month. Francis, can we talk a little bit about this astonishing deep dive by the Washington Post into the relationship between Ukraine's security services 
and American security services, specifically the CIA. We're going to go into a lot more detail on this tomorrow, I hope, but you've been reading it. Would you be able to just sum up some of what you've taken from it? Thanks, David. Yes, I think we felt that given the scale of this and how much conversation it's already providing, it was necessary for us to cover the essence of it today and then go into a little bit more detail later in the week. I can't possibly do justice to this piece in the Washington Post now, but it's it's fascinating, frankly. It's headlined, Ukrainian spies with deep ties to CIA wage shadow war against Russia. And it's already stoked the Kremlin into a response this morning who've said that Russia has long known that the Ukrainian special services are under the close control of the United States and Britain. Now, that's not what the Washington Post actually says. It talks about the partnerships between the CIA and the operations taking place by Kyiv's intelligence services. But that's how Moscow seemed to be keen to interpret it. And I should add their obsession with the British intelligence services is extremely interesting. When you watch the propaganda channels, they're constantly talking about MI6 and it seems they have more faith in Britain's ability to control world affairs than Britain itself does. But anyway, I digress. So the piece, as I say, looks into the covert operations carried out by Kyiv's intelligence services, such as their twice bombing the bridge connecting Russia to occupied Crimea and blowing holes in the holes of Russian naval vessels in the Black Sea, just to provide some examples. Now, according to the Washington Post, those missions have involved elite teams of Ukrainian operatives drawn from directorates that were formed, trained and equipped in close partnership with the CIA. So since 2015, they argue the CIA has spent tens of millions of dollars to transform Ukraine's Soviet-formed services into potent allies against Moscow. That's coming straight from the officials that are interviewed for the piece providing Ukraine too with advanced surveillance systems, trained recruits at sites in Ukraine as well as the United States, building new headquarters for departments in Ukraine's military intelligence agency and sharing intelligence on a scale that would have been unimaginable before Russia illegally annexed Crimea. So this is all meant to have come about as a response to what took place in 2014. So this is not all as a response to the full-scale invasion, though it has been elevated since then. Rather, this is talking about what took place since uh, Putin chose to invade Crimea um, in 2014. Now, the extent of the CIA's involvement with Ukraine's security services has not previously been disclosed. We have talked about the relationship between the two sides before that's not new but i think the scale of it is and that's what the post is i suppose what's new here Uh, they've said that u.s intelligence officials stress that the agency has had no involvement in targeted killing operations by ukrainian agencies and that its work has been focused on bolstering those services ability to gather intelligence on a dangerous adversary one senior intelligence official they quote says that any potential operational concerns have been conveyed clearly to the Ukrainian services. This is, of course, very interesting because of those Western anxieties we've spoken about many times about some of the assassinations that were carried out within Russia itself. It quotes one official as saying, if Ukraine's intelligence operations become even bolder, targeting Russians in third countries, for example, you could imagine how that might cause rifts with partners and come into serious tension with Ukraine's broader strategic goals, namely, I would say, the the goals discussed in the first segment today, namely membership in NATO and the European Union. So this article 
is based on interviews with more than two dozen current and former Ukrainian, US and Western intelligence and security officials who speak on the condition of anonymity, citing, of course, security concerns as well as the sensitivity of the subject. I've only scratched the surface here of some of the detail, but I recommend it to anyone who's interested in this subject area. It's one of the deepest dives we've seen on the subject for some time, at least since The Economist did that piece on assassinations a month or two ago, which we discussed at the time. As I say, I don't think it's necessarily revelatory. We've known uh, for a long time the strength of relationship between the intelligence services operating from Kiev and certain other Western intelligence services. But I think what's interesting here is the level of detail, the uh, degree of depth uh, as to the sophistication of those operations, and also as well the fact that it is being willing to be spoken about publicly now. I think that in itself is revealing and talks to how far things have developed in the last 18, 19 months or so since the full-scale invasion, because there would have been a time that this would have been top, top, top secret. And the fact that now this can be more openly discussed, I think, speaks to what I was talking about earlier on, which is Ukraine very much coming under the Western fold now in a way that would have been seen politically dangerous to articulate in those first days of the war. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for summarising it. Final point before we go to... Uh, our final thoughts. Uh, you've been obviously looking at some of the events in Israel and Gaza over the past couple of weeks as well. One of the questions that we've been looking at, I think, as a newsroom is what kind of lessons have been taken from the war in Ukraine by both sides, really, and might be employed in any ground invasion in the future. We've seen Israeli tanks lining up on the border of Gaza. You've been looking at tanks in specifically. The headline of your piece is how Israel plans to avoid a Russia-style tank massacre in Gaza. I don't propose we go too much into depth here, but I do you think it's interesting because it does relate back to lessons from Ukraine? Yeah, so I spoke to a few people on this, a regular contributor, uh, Hamish Duretton Gordon, very helpful, so he's a, a real tank expert when I'm not. So yeah, there's a few points to be made. Much like in Ukraine, a tank is a prized asset and a prized target for both Ukraine and Russia. Anytime a tank is destroyed, whether it be, say, the, for instance, the Challenger 2, that was blown up by Russian forces or various Russian tanks are blown up, they're lauded as big moments. And that is no different to the Makurva main battle tank of Israel when eventually this expected ground operation is uh, launched into Gaza. So one of the things we've seen happen is these so-called coping cages or cope cages. They're the metal protections over the turret of the tank which stops ammunition, say whether it be grenades or mortar bombs being dropped from drones. So they've appeared on Israeli tanks. And then one thing, and this is a slight nod to the economist who did an interview with the commander of the Israeli Defense Forces Armored Corps, Brigadier General Hisham Ibrahim. He said, we saw how the Russians fought in Ukraine and the mistakes they made. They fought in single core fashion instead of using combined arms tactics. So basically, what this guy's saying is we saw Russia basically operating tanks on their own and they were being taken out by Ukrainians quite easily using various Western donated anti-tank missiles, whether they be the Javelin or the Enlor. So that is fascinating. So basically, the Israelis aren't going to just send tanks into the highly urban populated areas of Gaza because they'll be sitting ducks. Um, and then what 
that Bretton Gordon was saying is he said they would likely be used in safer positions. So the McCarvers would be used in a rear position, so set back, and be used as essentially long-range precision fires. And that's exactly how the Ukrainians have used their uh, 14 Challenger 2 tanks. They've used the more elite fire weapons taking advantage of their two-kilometre range rather than using them in built-up areas where they could easily be caught out. And then just some other sort of language, we've come to learn that $500 drones and $500 grenades can take out multi-million dollar machines or tanks. So it's all little bits like that that Israel has been carefully watching what Ukraine and Russia have been doing to ensure that when they eventually go up to fight Hamas on the ground, that they are going to be prepared for every situation. Because by now we surely know Hamas have also been watching that conflict and will be trying to replicate as much of Ukraine's great successes in destroying Russian tanks as they can. Thank you very much, Joe. That's fascinating. Let's go then to our final thoughts. Francis Turnley, can I start with you? Well, thanks, David. The new voice of Ukraine, Ukraine's daily news resource, has interviewed the historian Timothy Snyder, who is always worth listening to. And given I was talking earlier about the geopolitical shifts taking place as a result of this war, I thought I would read a few extracts from it. Now, one of the biggest mistakes, he says, and it's one I happen to agree with strongly, was that in the 1990s and 2000s, there was a thinking in the West that any capitalism is good capitalism, to quote him. So he goes and says, capitalism seemed a kind of magic. It seemed that it was necessary to simply remove the previous regime and then capitalism would come and bring democracy. And we encouraged you, we encouraged people in the post-Soviet space in Eastern Europe to think just like that, to associate capitalism with democracy. The reality, of course, was that money without some kind of morality behind it the injection of capitalism into a former socialist system without due process or diligence was, as he says, a major factor in the forging of the kleptocracy that we see in Russia today. And I think when historians look back on that period, it will be from a perspective of what we know now and people will judge it as being very naive. And yet one could argue that we're seeing a similar attitude towards China today. There is still an assumption, I would say, an orthodox opinion amongst many in influential circles, whether it be in Washington or London or elsewhere in Europe, that China will come round, that democracy will inevitably happen the more that China is brought into the economic system internationally. But there is, of course, a lot of <laughs> evidence to the contrary, not only given the Russia example, but also given, of course, what we've seen China up to in recent years. But I digress. Mr. Snyder also talks about how Ukraine is already making the world much safer, as opposed to say that it's doing the reverse. To quote him, you also make war in the Pacific less likely, because if Ukraine defeats Russia, it will be much more difficult for Beijing to decide to attack Taiwan. You give us security in a very, very deep way, he says. The biggest risk we face is not making sure that Ukraine wins. Because all these things I mentioned and a few more, such as the risk of nuclear war or the preservation of international law, depend on Ukraine's victory. Now, lastly, he offers an interesting reflection on this question of what a worst case scenario involving America might look like and how that perception is already having an impact in European capitals and in Moscow. And he argues 
If Trump wins, even in the worst case, Europe still has the resources to support Ukraine and win this war. I think it's very important to tell the Europeans about this now, because the Europeans are psychologically preparing themselves to say, well, the Americans are gone and we'll probably have to lose. This is a very dangerous way of thinking. It shouldn't be allowed. And one has to wonder, David, what the reality might look like now in the context of this war if both parties in Congress were unified on the matter of Ukraine. Surely the West and the Kremlin would be making very different calculations. Who knows, perhaps Moscow would be preparing a very different kind of off-ramp than what we're currently seeing, namely digging in and hoping to ride things out until the presidential election. This is not a hypothetical of what will happen when the presidential election comes about next year. Decisions are already being made today that are having implications on this war based on our current understanding of what will likely occur. So this is already having arguably a negative impact. And I think it's something that Professor Snyder is right that needs to be reflected more deeply in the European context. There is no reason for this negativity, arguably, within Europe. There is still much that Europe can be doing to support Ukraine even further. It need not be that if America pulls the plug, that we are just going to have to be forced to accept that some Ukrainian territory is going to go to Russia. That is a huge assumption that has become, I would argue, to a degree, conventional thinking in certain European capitals. And I think it should be pushed back against very strongly. Thank you very much, Francis Sternley. Joe Barnes, would you like to finish today? I haven't mentioned it in the military updates today, but what's happening in Avdivka and the development of what we've seen from what initially was Russia's attempt at doing combined armed manoeuvre, doing a, a quick Blitzkrieg-style offensive with various tanks and armoured vehicles to what we've become known as like these human wave meat grinder style attacks. Uh, so sources in Kyiv would say that Russia is potentially losing up to a thousand men per day trying to assault in Avdivka and the sort of nearby areas of the Donetsk region. Um, and in today's British Ministry of Defence intelligence report, they have said that Russia is continuously relying on Storm Z units to launch these fresh offensives in Ukraine. So these are the assault units that are made up of former convicts that have been freed from jail to join Moscow's battle-stricken forces. So they were rose to prominence through the Wagner recruitment in prisons, but then the Russian proper military decided that it would also take that tactic on. And then we've also reported extensively on how regular troops who are facing disciplinary measures have also been put into these Storm Z units. We've recently reported on how soldiers found on the front line or drunk or on, say, having taken drugs, they've been dumped into these units. And these units are often deployed in human waves, repeatedly ordered to attack with little in the way of logistics support, often resulting in huge losses when they do that. So Britain's MOD wrote today, multiple accounts suggest the units are given the lowest priority for logistical and medical support, while they're repeatedly being ordered to attack. And one of those areas, as I mentioned, is Avdivka that they've been deployed in. And it just takes me back, and this is, a, I'll give a hat tip to Michael Kaufman, because I think he was the first analyst 
out there. I heard speak about this on the War on the Rocks podcast. So if you're ever in need of more content after Ukraine the latest, feel free to give them a listen. And he was saying that there is a prospect that Avdivka turns into the next Bakhmut. And what do we know about Bakhmut after months of relentless Russian pushes using these Storm Z-style attackers? They eventually were able to overcome Ukraine's defences in Bakhmut. And as the fighting stalls elsewhere, there is, say, for instance, the muddy season's coming, is Zaporizhia, is Bakhmut, is it going to slow down there? So will Russia be able to pour more and more human resources into Avdivka? The likelihood is yes, and it's one to really watch. And for many various reasons we've, we've set out over the last weeks or so as this offence has been going on, and Divka is massively significant. It's considered a linchpin in Ukraine's defences to stop Russia from pushing out of its controlled areas of Donetsk. But it's also seen as a position that Ukraine can push from into say, the occupied city of Donetsk, which is only about 15 kilometres, I think, away off the top of my head. But it's, it's one really to watch on how tactics are evolving and reverting back to this Storm Z-style attack with Russia not giving a care in the world for the livelihood of its men. They're just happy to see inches or metres of land captured from Ukraine, despite the cost. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter. And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.